The Lord had just miraculously and publicly fed 5,000 people, plus, of course, or 5,000 men, plus women and children, with a little lad's lunch. And in this Bread of Life sermon that we have been looking at for at least one week now, presented the very next day after the crowd had found him back in Capernaum, wondering how in the world he had gotten there without a boat, he then explained to them the spiritual significance of the miracle. And it's interesting that although all four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, had given to us that miracle, which told us it was a significant, important miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, Yet, only John was inspired by God the Holy Spirit to record for us the spiritual application of that particular miracle. The multitudes, remember, had wanted to crown him as their king. We saw that in John 6.15. And his men had obviously been in dangerous agreement with the crowd because uh, he had forced them, he constrained them to get on a boat And he evaded the crowd's efforts to crown him as their king. He is a spiritual king, right? In fact, he is the only king of heaven and earth. He came to set men free from their much more serious bondage to sin and death, not to the Herod dynasty and to Caesar. So he wanted his, the crowd to know that the bread that they had just the previous day miraculously received from him symbolized, pictured who? Him. He himself. He is the miraculous, heaven-sent, God-sent bread of eternal life. What he had just done the day before was a picture of him. So he wanted the questioning members of the crowd and those who then, we will see that this, this sermon actually shifts And it it goes into the Capernaum synagogue. If you want to take a uh, sneak preview at verse 59, we won't get to that until well after Thanksgiving. But the dialogue between him and the crowd switches over to that synagogue in Capernaum. And there he continued with his words to turn the crowd from thinking only in physical terms about their empty stomachs and this present world, which is what they were all focused on, this present world, he wanted them to turn from that to begin thinking about their eternal souls in the everlasting kingdom. Now, let's go ahead. I want to review what we read last week, and, um, and then we'll get into our lesson today. But if, let's just review from about verse 25, where they, they found him in Capernaum. This was after he walked across the, the raging waters of a storm. And then got in the boat and his disciples were immediately at the other shore. The crowd looked for him that morning, couldn't find him, figured he must be back in Capernaum, did find him there. And when they found him, they asked the question, Rabbi, when camest thou thither? And Jesus answered them, verse 26, by saying, Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye seek me not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. Then said they unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. 
They said therefore unto him, What sign showest thou then, that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? Our fathers did eat manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I said unto you that ye also have seen me and believe not. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. I am going to go ahead and read the rest of the verses, although we really won't be talking too much about these. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, those verses are absolutely loaded. How many times do you think in there he declared his deity over and over again? Just calling God his father, the Jews understood, was a declaration of deity. And then seven times he said he came down from heaven. What is that if it isn't a declaration of deity? And he also said, I think, a total of four times that he would be the one who would raise the saved on resurrection day. And the Jews really knew that was a claim because they understood that only God would, uh, would resurrect the dead. So over and over again, he clearly, and I guess that's why John was the one who was inspired to give us this Bread of Life sermon because remember, his emphasis is on the deity of Christ. All right. Now we want to continue our discussion which we began last week. Remember, we had divided this first part of the sermon, which I just read to you, into four subtopics. In verse 26, we called it true motive. We talked about that last week. Jesus had told the crowd he knew the real reason they sought him. It was for their own selfish reasons, their own carnal reasons, like so many professing Christians today. They were only interested in Jesus for what they could get out of him their association with him. How will he meet my needs? Like people today. You know, they want to add Jesus because they figure, well, how will he, he'll meet some of my needs. They'll go to church because, and they'll say, well, I wonder what this church can offer me. How can I be entertained by this church? Instead of thinking, what can I do for the church? What can I do for the Lord? It's all about me. He said, ye seek, we know their motive was false or, because he said so. He said, ye seek me not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. They love the loaves, not the Lord. We also discussed true meat in verses 27 to 29 and how Jesus urged his listeners to labor for that meat which endures. You know, the meat that endures forever for eternity, not the meat that perishes. He was telling them that there are two kinds of food. Food for the body, which of course is necessary, but not the most important. 
And then there is also food for the, the soul, which is absolutely essential. Food, physical food, only sustains life. But spiritual, Christ, spiritual food, gives eternal life. So he was urging the people to have a, um, a readjustment in their sense of values, get their priorities right. He was recommending a shifting of their emphasis. Unfortunately, the people only picked up on the word labor, and they completely missed the word give. They had, and, and we you know, understand this because they had been steeped in a legalistic form of Judaism, and therefore they thought that they had to do good works in order to merit eternal life. However, the Lord made it clear that there is only one quote-unquote work that is necessary. He was using their language. Only one work necessary for salvation. And what is that? To believe on the one who God had sent and sealed to be the giver of everlasting life. And even that work is really the work of who? It's really the work of God. There's no credit earned in believing because it is what God does in response to our faith that is important. Our work comes when? After. Our work comes after salvation. We serve out of gratitude for his work, don't we? We don't work to get eternal life. Then, as we began our discussion of true manna, we didn't finish this section, but we began it talking about true manna in verses 30 to 33. The crowd we saw got derogatory, and they also got demanding. Now, they had heard, probably all their lives, that when the true Messiah came, and they had heard this from their rabbis, that he would be able to duplicate the miracles of Moses. Now, remember just the day before, they recognized that he was that prophet. Speaking of the prophet Moses had predicted back in Deuteronomy, the one who would be the Messiah. Moses had said, or God had said, that he would raise up one like unto Moses. And that's where the rabbis got the idea that the true Messiah would be able to duplicate the miracles of Moses. And so here the crowd is telling Jesus that they simply did not believe his word as to who he said he was. They needed to see proof. It's amazing. They had just seen all kinds of proof the day before, had they not? They're from that area where he had been performing many, many miracles. He had performed many miracles actually before he even miraculously fed them, but still they asked for proof. Apparently, what they wanted to see was manna fall from heaven. Because they mention manna in verse 31. It's interesting to me <laughs> that they, they mentioned um, the manna, but they, they, and they mentioned their forefathers, didn't they? But they, they forgot to mention the fact that their forefathers murmured against Moses constantly. No matter how many miracles Moses performed out there in the wilderness, they murmured. And even when manna fell from heaven for 40 years, they managed to murmur about it. They, but they didn't bring that part of it up. <laughs> so they, they not only demanded a sign, but, and they were derogatory about it, because they're basically calling him a liar. We don't believe you unless you give us a sign. So they're derogatory, they're demanding, and then they dictate to him what they want that sign to be. 
And then they get real pious. But it's kind of ironic. In their piosity, they, they quote from Scripture. I didn't mention this to you last week, but they quote from Scripture at the uh, last part of verse 31 where it's, they say, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven. They're speaking there of Moses. That the Scripture they're quoting from is Psalm seventy-eight twenty-four, And that psalm records the hard unbelief and rebellion of the nation of Israel as they were out there in the wilderness wandering. <laughs> so, bad quote, guys. <laughs> but, you know, it's the same old, same old. Their forefathers had murmured and called manna, what is it? You know, that's what manna means. What is it? They're looking right at the true manna from heaven, and they're again going, what is it? Jesus, you know, or he's, if you look ahead, they, they say in... Um, Uh, Well, they murmur. Look at verse 41. It's just like their forefathers. They murmur after he tells them exactly who he is. And uh, and then verse 42, they basically say, what is it? Who is it? We know you. You're not. You didn't come from heaven. We know that you're Joseph the carpenter's son. And they even even got derogatory about that. All right. Anyhow, um, so it's just just funny to me that nothing changes. (laughs) Yet, much as God had been very patient and very gracious with the Jews, wandering, murmuring, complaining, rebelling in the wilderness, Jesus here in the Bread of Life sermon patiently attempted to teach the people how they were wrong in their assumption that he had to prove himself as being as great or greater than Moses. He attempted to deepen their understanding of truth. And as we read these verses and the verses for next time, We'll see how many times, he basically makes five claims, but all he does is repeat them, repeat them, repeat them. Why do you think there's a lot of repetition in the Lord's teaching? (laughs) Because we're sort of dumb sheep, aren't we? So I got to think, you know, if you think I repeat myself a lot, that's biblical. (laughs) First of all, he told them it was God, not Moses, who had given the Israelites the manna. uh, Moses had merely been God's instrument. They were giving the credit to Moses. God was the one who sent the manna. They needed to take their eyes off of Moses, and they needed instead to focus on God. And God had not only given them the manna of the past, but he was now also giving them the true bread from heaven in the present, in the person of Jesus Christ himself. He said, but my father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of heaven is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Now it's interesting that in this sermon he does make that statement that he came down from heaven a total of seven times. Seven is the biblical number for what? Perfection and completion. His incarnation, when the eternal Son of God came down from heaven into the womb of Mary, that's called his incarnation, the Son of God became the Son of Man, it was perfect and it was complete. This is also because he made this claim seven times. It tells us that this was a complete and perfect declaration of his deity. He came from heaven. What does that mean? It means he preexisted, right? 
In sending his son, God was performing an even greater miracle than he had performed when he had sent manna. Manna was perishable, perishable bread that only sustained physical life. Now God was giving, and the word give was literally offering, true bread. And the Greek word used for true does not mean in contrast to false. So it doesn't mean that now they have, they have the true bread and the manna was the false bread. It doesn't mean that at all. It means that it was true in contrast, or he is true bread, in contrast to that which the manna foreshadowed or anticipated. He is true because he is all that the manna looked forward to. Manna was a picture in type of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he clearly stated in verse 35, which is the key verse of the Bread of Life sermon, clearly stated that the true bread was himself. He said, I am the bread of life. He is the completion of all that was the incomplete type in the manna. Manna, as I said, was only per- it was perishable. And it was only for what nation? It was only for, for Israel while they were wandering in the wilderness. It only was for 40 years. But we're told in verse 33 that Jesus giveth life unto the world. Those who ate manna also had to eat it over and over again because it didn't fully satisfy, just like we have to eat breakfast every day or at least lunch. <laughs> or at least dinner. <laughs> manna had no power to ward off death. Do you know that everyone who ever ate manna is long gone? Everyone who ever ate manna is dead. But Jesus, the true manna, gives eternal life. He is not just a source of maintaining physical life. He is the source of all life, period. Well, that's a review. As we move now into the um, fourth division of our outline, which is called true mystery, we had true motive, True, what was the second one? True motive, true meat, true manna. Now we move into true mystery. And this is where it gets really mysterious. (laughs) We find that the people cry out, Lord, evermore give us this bread. Now, we talked about this a little bit last week too, but uh, at first this looks great. It looks like these people finally get it. They want to believe and receive Jesus. He's just told them he's the true bread, and they say, oh, evermore, give us this bread. Is this the case? Is this what they want to do? They want to submit to him as Lord and Savior and receive him, believe on him? No, unfortunately, it isn't. This is actually like some people who hear about Jesus Christ and quickly respond with, oh, okay, that sounds great. That sounds good. Give me Jesus. I'll take what he freely gives. And yet the proof of the pudding is to see where they are a little bit later. You know, it's like the seed that fell on stony ground. It shoots up real quick, but there's no root structure to it. We find that in just 34, no, 32 verses from when they made this statement, where they said, Lord, evermore, give us this bread, count forward 32 verses, and we are told in John 6:66, from that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. The vast majority of this crowd turned from him. Actually, at this point, they were much like the woman at the well. 
who had only a partial uh, understanding of Jesus' words when she asked him for, he had offered her the water to drink that he has to offer, and she said, oh, well, give it to me, because she thought that she would never have to thirst again and that she wouldn't have to make that long trek out to Jacob's well to fetch water. You know, she didn't get it at first. She did later, though, didn't she? We know that they were not genuinely asking him for his free offer of eternal salvation and that they were not believing he was who he claimed to be, as the Samaritan woman eventually did, because of the fact that he didn't acknowledge their request. When they said, Lord, evermore, he didn't acknowledge it. Rather, what does he do? He kind of ignores what they said, and he goes right on with his discourse. In the words that he spoke now in the rest of this sermon, we're going to notice a repeated use of two key words, and they are come and believe. To come to Jesus entails believing in Jesus. To believe in Jesus also entails coming to Jesus. Believing involves, therefore, more than just a mental assent of facts about Christ. It's more than just a head knowledge because it also involves coming to him, yielding to him. Believing, uh, believing means that um, you have to internalize him. And as we get deeper into this sermon, after Thanksgiving, when we get into uh, the, the part where we're going to be talking about the doctrine of transubstantiation, we're going to see that he illustrated coming to him and believing in him by speaking of eating and drinking. In other words, what he's saying there is don't take his words literally. He's speaking spiritually, symbolically. In other words, he must be received. He must be invited inside. He must be internalized. Just like you have to take food in, you have to internalize it. He has to be internalized. You can't just have the facts about him up here. They have to be internalized down into your heart, right? That's all he's basically saying, but he has been so misunderstood. Not only back then, when he originally gave this discourse, but he's still misunderstood to this day because people take that literally. All right, John 6.35, the key verse of the sermon, Jesus reveals the true mystery of the bread from heaven. He had just fed them the day before with the loaves of bread, and now in the first of seven great I am statements, followed by metaphors, followed, uh, um, found only in John's gospel, he said, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never, remember I told you in the Greek, it's a double negative, which means it, it just cements the fact that it's true. Never, no, never hunger. And he that believeth on me shall never, no, never thirst. Now, I said seven great I am statements in the Gospel of John are made by the Lord Jesus Christ that are followed by metaphors. For example, this is the first one. I am, metaphor, the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am the true vine. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I don't know if I've left one out, but those are all followed by metaphors. Now, did he make in the, in the Gospel of John other I am statements that didn't have metaphors behind them? Yes, he did. We just saw one when he was walking on the waves out to the disciples in the boat. And he said, Igo, ime, I am. And again, when they come to arrest him, when he's there in the Garden of Gethsemane, and they said, are you Jesus? And he said, 
I am, and they all go tumbling down. So he did make other I am statements, but there are seven in the Gospel of John which are followed by metaphors, and every one of them is perfect, as we'll see starting today with the bread. He's a perfect picture of bread. You remember God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush as, what did he say his name was? I am that I am, or Yahweh. The Jews to this day will not even pronounce that name. They won't even write it. They'll put the first letter and the last letter with a line in between. Jehovah, Yahweh. Uh, It it speaks of his eternal self-existence. Who else can say, I am that I am? We could say, I am, but I wasn't. (laughs) And if you're saved, you know, I am and I will be. But we can't say, I am and I am. (laughs) I've always been. From the beginning to the end, I am. And he lives outside of time. So he's always in the present tense. That's his great holy name. And when Jesus used this name... He was definitely, the the Jews understood, he was definitely once again making a claim to deity to dare to use the name of Yahweh. Furthermore, in saying, I am the bread of life, he was not only um, claiming deity, but he was claiming here the fact that he is the fulfillment of all that manna anticipated. He was explaining in spiritual terms the physical miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 the day before. He was telling them that the food He had been speaking about, remember when he said labor for that food, the meat that doesn't perish, he was telling them that that food he was talking about wasn't physical food, but it is a person. They hadn't picked up on that, I guess, back in verse 33, when he had said, for the bread of God is he, not it, he which cometh down from heaven. So, because they apparently didn't get it, He uh, made himself even more clear. He repeats himself by saying that the he of whom he had spoken was himself. How clear can he make it? I am the bread of life. Secondly, he told them that once a person cometh to him, he or she will find complete satisfaction. That empty void within will be filled. Have you found that to be true? I surely have in my life. You know, there's, it's just like we have a, a God-shaped vacuum in our hearts, and until, until we invite him in and he fills that space, people go around empty, not satisfied. They would not need to evermore. Remember, they said evermore give us this bread. They would, they would uh, not need to be like those in the, in the wilderness having to eat manna every day because it only temporarily satisfies. He offers, Jesus offers, eternal satisfaction. You will never know, never hunger, never know, never thirst. Now, you know we only receive Jesus Christ once. You, don't, you know, you're only born once. You all have a birthday? You only have one birthday, right? You're only born once. Well, we're only born again once also. We're all born again spiritually only once. We do not need to receive Jesus Christ over and over and over again as some church doctrines sort of teach. He has to be received, eaten, taken in over and over and over again. He's once. You're only saved. You're only born again once. Now, this is different from from our need for daily bread. Remember, we're taught to pray, give us this day our daily bread. 
Our daily bread is right here in the written word. This is, this is our daily manna right here. Christ is once. He's the living word. This is the written word. Christ is once for salvation. Scripture is daily for sanctification as we grow more and more conformed into his image. Now, the use of the metaphor of bread to speak of himself is really very appropriate. And why wouldn't it be? Everything Jesus said was always very appropriate. Like when he said he's the true vine, that's very appropriate, etc. But bread is so appropriate. It's a basic, necessary food, isn't it? It's a food suited for all people. It's a food for both the rich and it's a food for the poor. All nationalities, I guess no matter where you would go on planet Earth, or what uh, century you would go, you'll find people eating bread, some form, type of bread. All people eat bread. It's a food we don't grow tired of, do you? Ooh, especially when it's right out of the oven and it's warm and you put some brumble and brown butter on it and a little uh, raspberry preserves or fig, ooh, mm. I didn't have my breakfast this morning. <clears throat> it sounds good, but we don't get tired of bread, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> Some of us eat too much bread. <clears throat> it's a staple food, and it's one that nourishes us from our youth all the way to our old age. Sometimes, some of the ladies were laughing. They said some people can just, all they can do is gum a piece of soft white bread when they get, but it is. You know, my little grandson started eating bread. It's one of the first little things he could eat was little torn up pieces of bread. Jesus Christ is for all people, is he not? And he is basic. I'm glad he didn't say, I am the broccoli of life. Because <laughs> that would kind of leave me out. Uh, or spinach. <laughs> Cooked spinach. He is necessary for life. Furthermore, bread is also a perfect metaphor for Christ if we think about how it is made. The grain has to be cut down, and it has to be ground into flour. It has to be kneaded and pushed and pulled upon, and then subjected to the fiery process of the oven before it becomes fit to sustain um, life. Now, if you will go in your Bibles over to Numbers, back in the Old Testament, Numbers 11, 8. I want you to see, if you didn't know, what the uh, wandering Israelites did with manna. I guess, apparently, after 40 years, there came a time when they got a little bit tired of eating raw manna. I don't know if manna, you could say manna was raw, but uh, they decided they'd be creative with it. Now, what did manna taste like raw, straight from heaven, when they picked it up? Honey and sweet. It was sweet. It tasted like honey and uh, coriander seed or something looked like coriander or tasted like coriander seed. If anybody knows what a coriander seed is, please give me one and show me one because I don't know what it is. Um, all right, so after a while, they, they decided that they would uh, gather up the manna and they, they ground it. You see Numbers eleven eight. They ground it, they beat it, they baked it. Interesting, just like bread, right? And then after they baked it, when they tasted it, what did it taste like? It's right there. It tasted like fresh oil. So it went from tasting like honey to fresh oil. I don't know if that's good or bad, but fresh oil? Anyway, I guess they liked it. 
this was the same kind of experience of Jesus Christ, the bread of life, who was bruised for our iniquities, you know, cut down, beaten, kneaded, pushed, pulled upon, subjected to the fire of God's wrath on our behalf. And he endured all of this so that he might be the bread of life for you and I. And when we are willing to taste of him, we find that, what does it say in Psalm 34, 8? Taste and see that the Lord is good. He's like honey. He's like those cookies some of you make at uh, Christmas time that just melt in your mouth. Those white ones, wedding cake cookies. And then there's that other kind, meringue kind of, mmm. I know, I'm getting hungry. (laughs) Furthermore, when we taste of him, what do we receive when we're born again? Who do we receive when we taste of Christ? The Holy Spirit. And what is a biblical picture for the Holy Spirit? Oil, fresh oil. I had never seen that before. So I wanted to share that with you. That's very interesting. Numbers 11.8 how it tasted like fresh oil. And that's, again, perfect picture of the Holy Spirit after we received Christ. All right, so the people had requested a sign. They wanted to see manna fall from heaven or to have Jesus prove that he was greater than Moses by feeding them over and over again. So Jesus said to them, in effect, you want to see a sign? Well, then look at, look at me. You want to see the bread from heaven? You want to see manna? Here I am. I'm the true bread from heaven. I'm the very bread of life sent from heaven by God, my father. And guess what? Yet ye do not believe. Verse 30. I am your sign. You have seen me and yet you do not believe. You look at me and you still say, just as your forefathers, what is it? Who is it? And you still murmur, as we saw when we looked ahead at verse 43. Now, as we go into our discussion of the next verses, we get into some very heavy waters. And I had told you last week that this is probably the most theologically rich sermon that the Lord ever gave, or at least one of them. It certainly is the one that sent more people packing. (laughs) And I hope that our teaching on it will not do likewise. I hope it will not send any of you packing. That it is my prayer my deep, sincere prayer, as it has been for many weeks going into this, that we all have as our top priority in this Bible study the desire to know what God's word has to say, to rightly divide the word of truth, rather than the teachings of men. We must be careful, as Paul wrote, to not be spoiled with philosophy or vain deceit after the traditions of men or the rudiments of this world. We're not to be spoiled by those things. Who are we to be spoiled by? Who are we to follow? The Lord Jesus Christ, Colossians 2.8. We should not only know, and I am so firm on this, this is just one of my big issues in being a teacher of God's word, uh, that we should not only know what we believe. A lot of people don't even know what they believe. But we should know why we believe what we believe, and not just because somebody told us what to believe. For example, our forefathers. What if, just what if, your forefathers were wrong? 
as theirs were. Mine certainly were. My forefathers were, were very wrong. Sometimes, you know, our forefathers were wrong. You're very fortunate if they weren't. And some of you have grown up with good heritage. But, and please don't just go away from here saying, Catherine said, and so it must be true. Search the scriptures for yourselves. We each have the responsibility to search the scriptures as those faithful Bereans did in the book of Acts and to do so with the greatest spirit of humility. That's what I have been praying for more than anything is that I could do this in the spirit of humility knowing that I can't always trust my own heart. None of us can, all, can trust our own hearts. It says he that trusteth in his own heart is a fool. I don't want to be a fool. That's what scares me more than anything is to get up here and tell you something and be wrong. I admit to you up front I am doing the very best I can. I told you I'm a simple person. This has been hard on me, very hard to get into all this stuff. And um, we're, not also, we're not to trust in our own reasoning power. But you know what we can trust in? The only thing we can really trust in is revelation. The only God-inspired, breathed, God-breathed book that we have is this one right here, the Holy Scripture. That's the only God-written book in existence. The writings of men, apart from the authors of the 66 books that make up the Bible, the writings of even great men, even godly men, deep-thinking Bible scholars and theologians who way over my head, even men who came together to write cat church catechisms and uh, church dogmas and creeds and, um, and doctrines, those men cannot claim inerrancy. Only this book can claim inerrancy. There have been many men of God down through the centuries who have helped us tremendously with our understanding of Scripture and what is called, if you went to seminary, if your husband went to seminary or Bible college, you would have to take classes called systematic theology. There have been great men who have helped us tremendously in understanding what's called systematic th theology. But to elevate any man's conclusion or any church's conclusion to a position of final authority or to make their teaching a test of the doctrinal soundness of Scripture is wrong. We need to be careful not to do what Paul warned against back in the New Testament days, going around saying, remember they were going around saying, well, I am of Apollos, or I am of Paul, or I am of Peter. We need to be careful not to say such things as, I am of Jacobus Arminius. And you all say, I'd never say that. <laughs> I don't even know who he is. Now, some of you, this is going to all be over your head. Don't worry about it, okay? Don't worry about it. Precept upon precept, line upon line. If you don't get this, I don't want you going. I really don't want you leaving here with a headache. Final line is we'll get to the bottom line about it. We don't understand everything God has to reveal to us. But um, some of you will get this. And this is for those of you that will get this. All right, anyhow, we don't want to say I'm of John Calvin. We don't want to say I am of Aurelius Augustine or I am of this very famous pastor today in the world or of this one, etc., etc. Who are we to be of? Again, Jesus Christ. A couple of weeks ago, I was sitting in a public place, and this was actually when I was preparing for our miracle 
of the feeding of the 5,000. So I had my, my papers with me, my notes with me, and I knew I was going to be waiting for a while. So I had a book called Jesus Christ and His, His Miracles. And this girl saw my materials, this young woman, and uh, came over. She was actually kind of looking over my shoulder as I was reading. I could sense her looking, and then she was, seemed very eager to share with me that she was a Catholic. And then she immediately asked me, well, what are you? And I told her, I said, I am a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm a Christian. I am what you call a born-again Christian. But more than anything, being a follower of Jesus Christ, I am a biblicist. Well, I think I took her off guard because all she did was flash a smile at me and walk away. <laughs> I don't think she knew what to make of that. Uh, but truly, more than any man-made titles like Methodist, Lutheran, Pentecostal, Presbyterian, Catholic, Episcopalian, Baptist, Calvinist, Armenian, Augustinian, we should all desire to be biblicists. We should. We should desire to be followers who, of Christ who want to know what he had to say, what he taught, even at the expense of finding that it may or may not match up to what we've always heard, to the teachings of our forefathers. And this is what we want to do here. And we want to do it with a great spirit of humility, acknowledging that we too are fallible. And if there's anything I've learned the last couple of weeks, it certainly is that I am fallible. I have been reading, reading, reading. Uh, believe me, I know that to fully understand God and his ways would be a claim of a total absurdity. <laughs> and I am not doing that. Um, because our human limited our, our human understanding is so limited, even, have you realized this, even some of our most sincere questions about God are going to go unanswered during this life. We will not know a lot of things about God until we get to glory. All we can do in areas that we do not understand is accept them in faith simply because they have been revealed to us in his word. Now, saying all that, I also have to say that where God's word is clear, we can be dogmatic. And I can get very dogmatic on issues when I know that I have scripture behind me 100%. I can stand firm, and so can you. For example, if somebody challenged the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ or his deity and other issues, I can get very dogmatic about that. But where he has not been so clear... We need to settle for reasonable discussion. Come, let us reason together and wait until we know more in glory. So if any of you get offended by what I have to say today, please know that I, you are free to study the scriptures and to believe what you believe. Just listen to what I have to say. I've done the best I can. Uh, don't leave here being mad at me, please. Okay. Are we all in agreement so far? So far. Okay, it's a good place to start. <laughs> what we come to in verses 37 to 40 of the Bread of Life Discourse is the Lord's explanation of personal salvation in him. And I'm going to stick pretty much to my notes because I don't want to get off track here. But these words are so profound that men literally have been attempting to plumb their depths for centuries. So we're certainly not going to settle everything here this morning. 
In them, we find, first of all, the doctrine of divine election, and then the doctrine of human free will. And this is always the order when it comes to salvation. It always begins with who? With God. He created us. He loved us before we loved him. He sent his son to die for us. He revealed himself in nature. He revealed himself in our consciences. He put the light of himself into all men. He gave us his written word, the Bible. He draws us through all these things that I have just mentioned. He draws men to himself, to his son. And he uses the reproving work, of course, of God, the Holy Spirit, John 16, 8, etc., etc. It all begins with God. It says in John 6, 44, look at that. It's probably on the same page you're on right now. No man can come to me except what? The Father which hath sent me, draw him. It all begins with the drawing grace of God Almighty. After having told his listeners in verse 36, that they had seen him, that he is all the sign that they ever need, and yet this crowd did not believe him. Jesus went on to say, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. In other words, the Father gives men, women, and young people to the Son. All that the Father gives me. And he repeat. if you look ahead at verse 39, he repeated this truth when he said, And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that all which he give, hath given me, I shall lose nothing. And that's, another, that's a doctrine at the end of eternal security, which we'll have to talk about when we come back from Thanksgiving. And in John chapter 17, which is the Lord's high priestly prayer, six times he repeat, repeats this similar statement that God gives to him. His, those who are elect. God the Father works sovereignly in people's lives. There is an election of God that is the Father's gift to the Son. So therefore, Jesus is basically saying to this crowd who saw him and yet did not believe that he was not worried, concerned, of course, it wouldn't be, but uh, putting it in our language, that his work would be ineffective. He wasn't concerned about that because the Father will give who he will give anyway. The Father will and does enable people to come to Jesus. That's the second part. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Now, the problem is some see it or try to logically figure it out. Some of the stuff you cannot logically figure out. But some try to do that, and then they wind up getting themselves into the realm of philosophy and into having to reinterpret, in some places, the plain sense, or the plain meaning of certain words in the scripture. So the problem, as some see it, is how we can be divinely elected and yet have our own free choice in the matter. Now, if you think about that long enough, you will be scratching your head. It is pretty difficult to figure out. You know what? It's also very difficult to figure out how God can be 100% God and how he can also be 100% man. There are just some things that go, kind of go beyond our comprehension. We're limited. We're also limited to time, space, and matter. Now, there are those today who completely eliminate any choice in the matter on man's part by saying that because man is totally depraved, you know, he's just totally depraved, the doctrine of the total depravity of man, which I do believe in, 
but not in the same definition that these people do. Well, they say that because man is totally depraved and God is absolutely sovereign, meaning he's totally, totally in control, which, of course, I agree with 100%. He is absolutely sovereign. But they say that these two things, man's total depravity and God's total sovereignty, means that God does it all. Now, I just told you God always begins with God. But they say God does it all. God has, therefore, elected, or let's use the word predetermined, some to heaven, while others he has predetermined to go to hell. And this election by the God of the universe is, they claim, therefore, unconditional. It's called the doctrine of unconditional election. Now, I believe in divine election. But I do not believe in unconditional election. Unconditional election says that it is wholly, completely, totally on God's part and without any condition whatsoever. The individual, in other words, has absolutely nothing to do with it, to do with their salvation. It goes on to say that when God offers salvation in the Bible, it is not offered to those, therefore, who have been foreordained by God to eternal damnation in hell. Now, there's no doubt that the Bible does speak of God's election. It does speak of God's election, divine election. Now, my study of the scripture tells me that that divine election is based on his foreknowledge. Foreknowledge just means prior knowledge. He knew ahead of time. Does he know the end from the beginning? Yes. Actually, he knows everything at one time. He knew every because he's outside of time. So when he looks down, he's seen it all from the beginning to the end. Not only does he have foreknowledge, he has after knowledge and in between knowledge and the whole knowledge. <laughs> it was uh, if if it was based on if if uh, election was based on predestination or predetermination, God actually could have settled that matter for us easily. And if you'll go over to Romans, you all know Romans 8.28, right? Well, we know that all things work together for them that love God. Uh, but look at the next verse, Romans 8.29. God could have settled this issue for us. It would have been nice. It would have just helped a lot. <laughs> he could have said, for whom he did predestinate, he also did foreknow. He could have started with predestination, but he didn't say that. Instead, he said, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. But if you stop right there, it doesn't make any difference. Same thing. But he didn't go on. He, he went on. Uh, and does it, say, does it say that whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to go to heaven or hell? Is that what it says in that verse? It says... For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. In other words, he saw ahead of time, knew ahead of time, those who would come to his son. Those who come to his son are not predestined to heaven or hell. Of course, once they've come, they are predestined. That's what it's saying. Once you've come to the son, you are predestined to make it all the way being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will complete it. 
This is actually predestination is all about eternal security. Once you've come to him, you are predestined. You know what? One day you're going to be glorified. It's predestination to glorification. The word predestination is only found uh, six times in the scripture. One of those has to do with the fact that Jesus was predestined to suffer. So there's only four, five times that it has to do with you and I. And every one of the, them, it is talking about this fact that we are predestined to glorification, to the end product. Now, yes, Scripture does tell us that God chose, selected certain individuals, such as Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David, and the prophets and the apostles to do certain things that he has planned. He chose a nation, didn't he? You know, he's sovereign. He can choose who he wants to do what. Or, you know, it's totally up to him. We cannot question him that he chose Israel instead of the United States of America to be his chosen people. Or he chose Abraham. Um, he chose Israel to, through whom to give the law and other things and through which, you know, the Savior would come. These types of choosing have to do, however, with service and with, with his purpose, not with regard to individuals going to heaven or hell. It's true, it's what the apostle wrote regarding Christians in Ephesians 1.4. This is another place I want you to turn if you don't mind going to Ephesians 1.4 because this is a verse that is very often used with those who propose unconditional election. Uh, Paul wrote in Ephesians 1.4, and Terry, you'll recognize this, <laughs> according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. <clears throat> now, I've had this verse used to me by those who believe in unconditional election because they say, look, right there, it says he hath chosen us before the foundation of the world. That therefore means that believers were chosen, predestined before the foundation of the world, and conversely, this means that unbelievers were also likewise chosen before the foundation of the world. So nobody has any choice in the matter. God elected his chosen. He predetermined his chosen. Now this verse causes a lot of trouble. But notice, we always have to make sure we see every word in scripture. Notice it doesn't simply say that he chose us before the foundation of the world, does it? It says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now those words in him, even though they're little, they're vital, they're important. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. When, if you're saved, when did you get in Christ? The moment that you trusted him as your personal savior, you became, you were put in Christ. Now as far as God is concerned, because he lives outside of time, he is I am that I am. And to him, you know, a thousand years is as a day. And a day is as a thousand years. So that means, what does that mean? It means he's outside of time. According to him, Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world. It was already an accomplished fact as far as the mind of God was concerned. Because he saw it as, a, as an accomplished thing. You can read about it in Revelation 13, 8. Christ was slain before the foundation of the world. Now, we didn't exist at that time, did we? But Jesus did. 
all who are saved were already in him because he existed before the foundation of the world. As even before we were born, we were seen by God as being in Adam, right? As far, this is as far as the foreknowledge of God was concerned. Before the foundation of the world, we were already in Christ. So when we are saved, we are in Christ. And thus, in our position in him, we become elect before the foundation of the world, which is exactly what Peter confirms in 1 Peter 1.12, where he said, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. John 15.16 is another verse often used by the proponents of unconditional election. That verse, in that verse, Jesus said, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go, ye should go forth and bring, that ye should go and bring forth fruit. Now, I've had that verse used to me also. He didn't choose you. I mean, you didn't choose him. He chose you. You didn't have any choice in the matter because he chose, chose you. He elected you. Who was Jesus speaking to here? He was speaking to his apostles. They were chosen. Now, God does choose certain people for certain things, like the nation of Israel, and like he chose those who would be in the lineage of um, the Messiah. That's totally up to him to choose who he wants to choose. We notice he always seemed to choose the second-born son, which was interesting. Maybe he was trying to picture the second birth, how important it was. Why did he pick Jacob and not Esau? He was selecting the nation of Israel. It wasn't that he selected Jacob for salvation or Esau for help. They both had their free choice. But that's all about Romans 9. Now, Romans 9, I'm not going to have time to get into, but I do have stuff up here I could give you if somebody comes up here and wants to throw Romans 9 at me, all right? But the word used here, he's speaking to his apostles, is electos. It's a Greek word which simply means to pick or choose from a number. It means to select for appointed an appointed task. For example, right now I can look around the room and I can say, um, let's see, who will I pick on here? <laughs> uh, Linda, would you please go and check on the nursery situation? All right? I just electos. I just elected her. I just chose her. That doesn't mean that I chose her for heaven or hell. Aren't you glad of that? I would choose you for heaven. And it doesn't mean that I predetermined before I came in here that I was going to choose her. But I just chose her for an assignment, a particular task. The apostles were chosen, elected, and ordained. Go ahead, look at the rest of the verse. And ordained, remember the ordination sermon, for an appointed task. What was that task? To bear fruit, to be soul winners. Jesus said nothing in that verse about his men being chosen for heaven or hell. In fact, one of those to whom he spoke was Judas. Nowhere does the scripture teach that it is God's will, his predetermined will, for some to go to heaven and some to go to hell. And doesn't the Bible say, for God so loved the world? How would that be love if God selected ahead of time all those who would go to hell? Would you call that love? I have a hard time thinking of that as love. What if that one of those were my child that he predetermined was going to go to hell? 
I wouldn't call that love. That's the name, why well, the name of one of these books that I read um, is called, What Love Is This? I have the same question. What love is that? The Bible teaches that God did not even prepare hell for man. Who did he prepare hell for? The devil and his angels. Now, if he had predetermined for people to go to hell, certain, most people to go to hell, by the way, why doesn't the Bible say that he prepared hell for all the unelect? My Bible tells me that God would have all men to be saved. 1 Timothy 2.4 My Bible tells me that it is not his will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 2 Peter 3.9 Nobody is predestined to be saved except as he or she chooses of his or her own free will to come to Christ and trust him for salvation. And no one is predestined for hell except as he or she refuses to trust in Christ right up to their last breath as Savior. That's what my Bible teaches me. That's what my Bible tells me. Some of the biggest problems with unconditional election, and by the way, this is a growing issue in our world today. There are a lot of people who are going with this belief. It's been around a long time. It starts with total depravity. I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, unconditional election, limited atonement, which I will be discussing when we get back from Thanksgiving, and I will be very dogmatic about it, even more so than I am today on unconditional election. I believe the Bible supports with all my heart that Jesus Christ died for all men, that he shed his blood for all men. I do not believe that he only died for the elect. I do not believe in limited atonement. But it is a big we were talking to Dr. Calder, and he said he sees this as one of the biggest growing movements in the church today. So I'm not talking about something that's irrelevant. Some of the biggest problems with unconditional election are that it makes God a respecter of persons, and I don't see how you can say it doesn't. That he is a respecter of persons. He chose who he would, and he chose who he wouldn't have with him throughout all of eternity. I think it would generate also nationalistic pride because I can't help but look at our country and say, well, we have so many more elect here than they do, for example, in some other countries, India or wherever, right? Wouldn't that generate nationalistic pride? Well, God certainly must be a respecter of the United States of America more so than some of these other nations. I see that it forces salvation on the elect. You know what? We didn't have any choice in the matter. Our salvation was forced on us. You know what? I was there when I got saved. Were you there when you got saved? <laughs> I know I made a choice. I remember making it. Now, yes, God did. He was sovereign, and he drew me to himself, and he knew he would draw me to himself. And he did it all. I mean, it all started with him, and it was his grace, and I don't get any credit in the matter at all. But I did have a choice in the matter. Uh, and this is my biggest bone to pick, is that it discourages evangelism and missionary activity. Why would you want to give up your life to be a missionary to go to some tribe in Africa if God's going to choose who he's going to choose to be saved anyway? Why not just, you know, enjoy your life here with the comfort of your own family and your creature comforts? 
And if you don't believe me, look at some of the churches who have been, that have been steeped in this for a long, long time. Did you ever wonder why? No, maybe I shouldn't say that. All right, anyway, it discourages evangelism and missionary activity. And uh, how is God, this is my big question. If you can answer this, fine. How is God glorified in this? How is he glorified by his angels and by his created beings? in predestinating some to heaven and most to hell? I don't know, but I would have a hard time really glorifying a God who's just this big Saddam Hussein in the sky and says, you're condemned and I'll let you live. I don't see how God is glorified in that. And it also does terrible violence to all the whosoever wills in Scripture. We'll get into that in a minute. Um, I, I have some, some really close, I can't say more than that, but some very close, uh, actually relatives, who are into this. And uh, she was praying with me about her father-in-law, and, and, and she prayed, Father, I pray that he is one of the elect. And I thought, what difference does that prayer make? Why even pray it? If he's elect, he's elect. If he isn't, he, is, he isn't. It's been predetermined. So what good does that prayer do? I like Charles Spurgeon's prayer. Now, there's mixed feelings about him as well. But he claimed to be something, but his words spoke that he was something else. But uh, Charles Spurgeon prayed all the time, Lord, hasten to bring in thine elect, and then elect some more. <laughs> and I love that prayer. Uh, what about this scenario, okay? Remember David, and he had sinned with Bathsheba, and they had a baby, and the baby, he prayed and cried for the baby to live, but the baby died. He said, uh, I know that I, he can't come back to me, but I can go to him. Now, wasn't he presumptuous? How did he know that that baby was one of the elect? Well, those who propose this kind of theology have a problem with this, with children. So they say all children up to a certain age are elect. All children, if they die up to a certain age and they waver on what that age, we would call it probably the age of accountability, but we don't call it the age of election. They say um, all children who die to a certain age are elect and will automatically go to heaven. If that is so, do you know what I would pray as a mother or what I might even do before my child got to that age? I'd, I'd pray for God to take his life, or, or I would take his life to make sure that he got into heaven for all of eternity. Because then once he got to the age of where he became elect or non-elect, I wouldn't know if he was elect or non-elect. Do you see what I'm saying? There's some trouble, troubling issues here. Although the Bible most definitely speaks of divine election and the sovereignty of God, I believe, of course, Divine election is based on foreknowledge and God being outside of time. It also clearly, clearly speaks of man's free will. The scriptures are full of verses that tell us man has a choice to make with regard to the offered gift of salvation in Christ. There are 110 whosoevers in the scripture. None of them have a restricted meaning to them. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The Bible does, 
does teach the doctrine of the total depravity of man. You know, that man, there's nothing good in man to earn or to deserve salvation. But I do not believe that the definition of the depravity of man is his inability. I do not believe in the doctrine of the total inability of man. If this were so, now think about this. This is going to put some thinking caps on you. Uh, you see, these people say that because man is so depraved, there's nothing in him that, can, that, that, he has, that he can make the right choice. So it's all been predetermined. If this were so, and it had to all be of God, you know, the man can do nothing, it's all of God, that would have to mean that God would have to regenerate a person before that person could then repent. Do you get it? God would have to bring that person to salvation, to regeneration, before that person was then able to repent. Because on his own, he can do nothing, remember? He's totally depraved, they say. And he is. But this would con- if this was the order, it would contradict God's own word. Does God contradict his own word? He doesn't. He says clearly that the order is repent and thou shalt be saved. He says the order is repentance precedes regeneration. The Bible teaches that God never gives any salvation without repentance. So how can a man repent if he's totally unable to do so and if he has no choice? Okay, did you follow that reasoning? The Bible nowhere hints that people are lost because they have no ability to come to Christ. The language of the Lord Jesus is this. He says, ye will not come to me that ye might have life. That's in the bread of, no, that's in the, um, sermon in uh, John chapter 5. He said, ye will not, not, you cannot come to me. He said, ye will not come to me. Remember when he was deeply lamenting over Jerusalem? And he said, how often would I have gathered my children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her, her wings, and what? Ye would not. Not ye could not. The scripture is full of such commands as come. Choose, receive, accept, be reconciled, believe. Uh, And they all speak of why would Jesus have said, strive to enter ye in at the straight gate. Labor for that meat. You know, why would he give us a choice like this? All of these words speak of man's choice in the matter. There's more than 150 passages just in the New Testament that call for faith and believing. And they are given as a call for a response from all mankind. In fact, the very last invitation of Scripture found in Revelation 22:17 says this. It says, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him that heareth say, Come. And let him that is athirst, Come. And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. God doesn't invite people to come when it is impossible for them to do so. It would be like a father putting his son in, in chains, big, heavy chains, and then saying, come to the dinner table, son. And the son has no choice. He can't. And so the father goes over and whips him and beats him, punishes him. Would you want to go glorify a God like that? Does that speak to you of a God of love? 
Now, will any who believe will any believe who are not elect? No, because God, in His foreknowledge, cannot be mistaken. The question before the, us is this: when it comes to this issue of unconditional election, does the plain language of Scripture indicate that God expects a man to be responsive to Him? Does it? The plain sense. Do you have to be some intellectual to reinterpret everything to say otherwise? We're just dumb sheep. Does the common sense of the scripture tell us that God expects us to give to be responsive to him? Choose ye this day whom ye shall serve. Does that sound like a choice to you? I, I may be really dumb, but it sounds like a choice to me. Equally obvious is that no depraved sinner would ever respond on his own. Thus, it must be true that God, by his sovereign grace, not only provides for the salvation of the elect, but he also provides a legitimate opportunity for every sinner to come to him. He provides the dinner, and he, prov and he draws the son. He doesn't have him chained up. He provides the dinner. He provides the invitation, and he provides the salvation. So what, what is our command? Go ye, therefore, into all the world, and preach the gospel to who? To every creature. God is not a failure. Now here's where they, um, I'm almost done. I know I'm keeping you over. God is not a, a failure as they would claim that God is if some whom he desires to save do not get saved. This is where I think they, they've gone into this deep thinking because they say, well, if he's sovereign and and he want, if he gave everybody choice and not everybody chose, then God has to be a failure. But God has not failed because, for example, one of his most glorious, his, actually his most glorious uh, cherubim rebelled against him. And he is not less sovereign because uh, Adam chose to rebel in, in the Garden of Eden. That does not make God less sovereign. Common sense, again, tells us that the sovereign, all-powerful, all-knowing God purpose to permit these incidents foreknowing, because he sees everything from the end to the beginning, the whole bit, foreknowing the results. And he used these to bring himself even greater glory. A quote from one of my books says this, and I'll just basically end with this. It says, The sovereignty of God is magnified to an even greater degree by man's choice than by forced choice to foreknow the thoughts and the intents of literally billions and billions of hearts is to say the least impressive. But to have an eternal purpose that does not get hindered but is actually fulfilled in the allowing of the choices of man is incredibly awesome. End of quote. Do you see what the man is saying? He's saying God is even more powerful and we have more to glory him for in that he gives us free choice and yet uses all of man's free choices to still work out his plan. Isn't that true? Isn't that what we see in scripture and in the world today? He's the one who puts kings on thrones and takes them down. They, those kings still have their own free will and their own choice. They're just as responsible, even as Judas was just as responsible for his damnation as any man. He had free choice, and yet all of it was known ahead of time, and it all works out together for God's ultimate purposes and for his glory.